Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves, continuing medical education podcast. Join us every other week for a lively discussion on the latest and greatest in the field of electrocardiography. We'll discuss some of the exciting and innovative work happening at Mayo Clinic and beyond with the most brilliant minds in the space and provide valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves. In this episode, we'll explore how to differentiate narrow complex tachycardias. We're thrilled to have Dr. Adrian Baranchuk back with us, who is certainly the, an expert on this topic. Now, in this episode, we're going to delve into an algorithm that simplifies and enhances the differentiation of narrow complex tachycardias encountered in clinical practice. We'll also discuss the fundamental knowledge required to identify some of the most common arrhythmias and examine how this approach actively applies an inductive deductive mechanism of learning and teaching electrocardiography. Before we begin, let's introduce our distinguished guest. Dr. Adrian Baranchuk is a professor of medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. He serves as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Electrocardiology, vice president of the International Society of Holter and Non-Invasive Electrocardiology, and the president-elect of the Inter-American Society of Cardiology. His invaluable contributions to the medical field are undeniable with over 600 authored articles and an extensive body of works in both books and books chapters that continues to grow. Dr. Baranchuk is a great supporter of young investigators, and we're so grateful to have him here joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kashu, for this invitation and to be able to join the Mayo Clinic radio podcast again. Now, we're glad to have you. You're always a, a popular hit, we've noticed. And so, you know, I, I th we had you here recently, and one of the topics you uh, talk to our ECG technicians was about differentiating narrow complex tachycardia. And I just thought, you know, I learned from that. And I'm sure there's so many in our audience, you know, despite not having the visual to see the ECGs, I think there's a lot that can still be said and garnered here. So I guess with that, we, we know it, it can be difficult to differentiate these. And some of them, you know, we manage patients differently. There's ways to uh, bring out some of the arrhythmias, but how can medical professionals best do this? Well, thank you for the question. Let, let's put this into context. First of all, narrow complex tachycardias are a big part of our daily practice and our clinical work. They represent about 80% of all the tachycardias that we see in clinical practice. The other 20% are of, of ventricular origin and most of the time, 90, 95% of the time, white complex tachycardias. So today, the focus is on the most frequent clinical arrhythmia conditions, which are the narrow complex tachycardias, which are a myriad of different arrhythmias with different repercussion for the patients and with different implications for us to detect which one is it and how are we going to solve it. So today, the idea is to discuss a simple, easy to remember and easy to apply algorithm that can help the healthcare provider to identify which type of narrow complex tachycardia you're dealing with. So if, if you're ready, I would like uh, Anthony to navigate you through this simple algorithm. Sure, no, I, I think that's what I've been, you know, hearing it live here, but I, I would love for you to share, you know, this algorithm and how, you know, clinicians can use it today in their practice. Very good. So this algorithm is based 
on three very simple questions. And you will notice that I go again and again and again when I teach this to these three simple questions until the audience uh, gets familiarized with it and they can repeat it themselves without my intervention, without taking notes as, as part of a natural way of thinking. This is what is about the inductive deductive mechanism where you're going to understand the process of thinking and then you can apply it yourself. And the only matter that matters, matter that counts is practice. The more you practice this algorithm, the easier will come to your mind when you need it. So the first question is, is the tachycardia narrow or wide? Very simple to determine more than 120 milliseconds, three little squares indicates wide. And if it is wide, then more than 90% of the times, this is a ventricular tachycardia. So it's not part of the area of interest for the tachycardias we're analyzing today. However, if you answer that the tachycardia is narrow, you move to question number two. And quest question number two is, is it regular or irregular? And for that, you measure the space between the RR intervals. And if they vary from one to another more than 20%, which is visually detectable, then you're dealing with a narrow complex irregular tachycardia that more than 90% of the times is the most common arrhythmia in clinical practice, which is atrial fibrillation. If in addition, you don't see the P waves and you see flatteries, small and flattering waves through the RR intervals, then you're confirming atrial fibrillation. The other alternative for a narrow complex irregular tachycardia is an atrial flutter with variable AV conduction. And for that, you have to be able to detect the sawtooth pattern in between the RR intervals, a task that sometimes is not super easy. So as you can see in the first two questions, wide versus narrow, if your answer that is wide is VT, a narrow, second question, regular versus irregular, you answer that that is irregular, you diagnose atrial fibrillation, in five seconds in your mind, you have diagnosed the two most common arrhythmias in clinical practice, ventricular tachycardias and atrial fibrillation. Let's move to the third question. If you say that is narrow and that is regular, the third question is, where is the P wave? And to answer the question where the P wave is, you're going to move to the inferior leads 2, 3, and AVF. Option number one, the P wave is positive and before the QRS in the inferior leads. 90% of the times that corresponds to sinus tachycardia, which is when the heart is running at 100 beats per minute, either because you have a condition, anemia, fever, hyperthyroidism, you name it, or physiologically when we are exercising. Of course, someone may say, well, but it could be an atrial tachycardia that it comes very close to the sinus node. True, but this algorithm is constructed to answer the most common arrhythmias. It will cover 90% of the total, but for sure it will give you a hint on the most common arrhythmias. There will be some tachycardias that are not perfectly detected by this algorithm where you need a little bit more of input. So as I said, option one, 
is the P wave is before the QRS and it's positive in the inferior leads. Option two, the P wave is still before the QRS, but it is negative in the inferior leads, indicating that the origin of the bead is still in the atrium, but in the lower part of the, of the atrium. So from the inferior leads, as the depolarization of the atrium is backwards from bottom to top, you're seeing the tail of the vector and the tail is negative. So then you have a negative inscription in the P wave. We call that low atrial tachycardias that could come from the right side close to the coronary sinus or from the left side close to the inferior pulmonary veins. Of course, there are ways more specific than to determine right to left. Today, we're going to say that if you have a negative P wave before the QRS, that is a low atrial tachycardia. And option number three is that you see the sawtooth. And if you see the sawtooth, you're dealing with atrial flutter. And remember, most of the flutters in patients without antiarrhythmic drugs or prior heart surgeries are going to run at 300 beats per minute. So a two to one atrial flutter is a fixed rate of 150 beats per minute. And this is maybe the first tip of the day. Anthony, if you are seeing a patient in the ER with a heartbreak at rest exactly at 150 beats per minute, first consider a two to one atrial flutter. Then the rest of the options, you can have a typical AVNRT at 150 beats per minute, true. But you know what? When it is 150 bits per minute, that perfect mathematics, it can be a two to one atrial flutter. We move to option number or, or group number two of where is the P wave? The third question of the algorithm. Wide versus narrow, we said narrow. Narrow, regular or irregular, we said regular. Where is the P wave? The second option, the second group of where is the P wave is you don't see P waves. The most common reason for not seeing P waves is lack of training. So go to your senior. If you are a tech, go to somebody like Alex. If, if you are a resident, go to the, the senior, the senior cardio fellow uh, in the group or go to your, to your training individual and show it to them. Because sometimes the P wave is at the very end of the QRS and it manifests as a pseudo R prime in V1 or as a pseudo S wave in lead 2.3 and AVF, and you're unable to see it, but it is there. But if truly there's no P waves, there are two mechanisms that can produce that. One is a junctional tachycardia that is depolarizing simultaneously the atria and the ventricle. And you don't see the P wave because the ventricle is a much thicker mass that can mask the atrial activity. Okay. The second possibility is a typical AVNRT, AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, where the antegrade limb is the slow pathway, but the retrograde limb is the fast pathway. And if that fast pathway conducts very fast, it can produce that both the ventricle and the atrium depolarizes at the same time. And when that happens, you may not see a P wave. The third group of where the P wave is is the P wave is negative and after the QRS. And for that, you have two groups. The R2P is shorter than the P2R, or the R2P is longer than the P2R. Colloquially, we call them 
short RP tachycardias or long RP tachycardias. Starting from the bottom, long RP tachycardias in adults exist. They are very, very infrequent. They are more common in kids. For the short RP tachycardias, you have two differential diagnoses. One, again, a typical AV nodal reentrant tachycardia where the fast pathway, it is fast, but not as fast to, to make the two chambers contract simultaneously, but first goes the ventricle and immediately after the atria. And the second alternative is an orthodromic atrioventricular reentrant tachycardia where the anterograde limb is the uh, slow pathway and the retrograde limb is an accessory pathway. It is important to distinguish these two as much as you can by the ECG. Sometimes the, the full differential diagnosis is done in the EP lab, but you can help the EP interventionist to be ready and to have the tools ready to ablate either a slow pathway for a typical AUNRT or an accessory pathway that can be in the left side for orthodromic AVRT. How do we do the distinction between the two? If the RP is shorter than the PR, but it is quite short, less than 80 milliseconds, two little squares, everything is happening around the AV node. So that is a typical AVNRT. While if the RP, it is shorter than the, than the PR, but the RP is a little bit longer than 80 milliseconds, consider the presence of an accessory pathway. And in those cases, then the interventionist can go ready to the EP lab knowing that there's a substantial possibility that he may need to do an ablation of a Wells Parkinson White. So in this way, with this simple algorithm, three questions, wide versus narrow. If it is narrow, regular versus irregular. If it is regular, where's the P wave? Before the QRS and positive, I don't see the P wave or negative after the QRS. We have arrived to a combo of different diagnostic alternatives, such as sinus tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, low atrial tachycardia, atrial flutter with variable or fixed conduction, typical AVNRT, atypical AVNRT, and orthodromic AV nodal reentrant tachycardia. You may say, but Adrian, I know about a tachycardia that is not included in that list. You're right, Anthony, but again, this simple algorithm may help you diagnosing 95, 98% of the narrow complex tachycardias. Thank you for sharing that. It's really amazing because like you said, it might not touch everything, but that's where you know we call in some of the experts like yourselves to help us get a little closer to that answer. But this you know, wide or narrow, and in this case, our focus was narrow, was it regular or irregular? And we, you showed us that the majority of irregular ones are going to be atrial fibrillation and maybe some variable conduction in the setting of atrial flutter. But and then the regular ones, you know, and where is the P wave? It's kind of such an easy um, algorithm that you've put together that has been you know, helpful for me as I look at ECGs even today. And I hope others appreciate it. Now, there is a, a component and I, I know we've covered the, the realm of common arrhythmias and you know, there's this inductive deductive mechanism of learning and teaching. And I think we should probably have an episode just, you know, talking about that. But how does that apply to this specifically? Basically, the, the two strategies are inductive deductive mechanism. The second one is pattern recognition. 
So super briefly, because I know that there is some interest for me to expand on this. Pattern recognition is, I've seen this face. This is Anthony Cashew. Then I don't see you, don't see you for three years. And I'm walking in, in Minneapolis one weekend that we went for, for some fun and some cultural activities. And I see this guy. And in a fraction of a second, when I didn't talk to you for the last two, three years, I say, oh, this is Anthony Cashew, the ECG guy, the EKG guy from Rochester, Minnesota. And I quickly establish a connection between that face that I've seen with something that my hard drive can recollect, right? That is pattern recognition. This is, Dr. Branchak, what do you think about this ECG? I look at it and I say, this is an spike helmet ECG. Why? Because I've seen it and I kept it in my memory. And I don't need to hear what is the clinical context, nor I apply any structured algorithm to arrive to this diagnosis. Another example of pattern recognition, Brugada ECG pattern. ECG, Brugada ECG pattern. I can't say Brugada syndrome, why? Because I don't know what, what the clinical context is, is, who's the patient, what were the conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But I've seen it so many times that when I see it again, I say, this is it, all right? In inductive deductive mechanisms, you have two possible streams. Stream number one, is you give me the clinical context. This is the ECG of a 67-year-old woman with chest pain, central chest pain, irradiated to the left arm, lasting for uh, two hours, and it does not release with nitroglycerin sublingual. You are giving me a context. So whatever I see in that ECG, it has to somehow explain why changes in the ECG are associated with that clinical context. So I have to say, okay, this is, this is angina and it is angina for two hours and I'm seeing an ST elevation. This could be either an OMI or STEMI as you want to define it. But I'm doing a process of inductive deductive mechanism. So clinical context. The second way to apply clinical, uh, sorry, inductive deductive mechanism is to know algorithms. Some easy to remember ones, like the one we described today for the um, diagnosis of, of narrow QRS tachycardias. Others that come to mind is differential diagnosis of white complex tachycardias from the Brugada algorithm, Vedeke and AVR algorithm, the PAVA algorithm from Colombia, all these different algorithms that help you distinguish in which one of the two. Maybe I should mention Dr. Mace algorithm as, as well, right, to be fair. Or localization of accessory pathway, uh, pathways. Where is this pathway localized? It's not that I see it and I say left, left lateral. I have to check what is the polarity of lead V1. In that context, is there a negative delta wave in one and AVL versus no delta in one and AVL, but uh, a negative delta in two, three and AVF. So I am inducting the way of determining where this pathway is located, you see? And what could be the integration of both? The case, arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia. I quickly see low voltage T-wave inversion V1 to V4 and epsilon wave. Without asking any question, I pass it back and I say, this is ARVD, but hold on a second. Why the voltage is, is low? Well, because there is a replacement of myocytes 
by fibrotic tissue. That is what the ARVD does. And why there is an epsilon wave? Because there is a delay of propagation of the impulse. So I do see that delay as a notch called the epsilon wave. You see, I can integrate now my pattern recognition into an inductive deductive mechanism. It's applying pattern recognition when the process should be inductive deductive. Why? Because you can make serious mistakes. For example, in the ER is when we want the people to apply more inductive deductive because they are first liners. They have to be ready to establish this thing to say, okay, atrial fibrillation. Yes, I diagnosed it. Was it start within the last 24 hours? Yes, so I can proceed to pharmacological or electrical cardioversion without clinical consequences. This, this AF started a week ago. Yes, okay, I can do rate control and anticoagulation and plan for electrical cardioversion in four to six weeks. So you see how applying this pattern versus inductive deductive may help you decide on what you're going to do next. This is really important. And I love how you separated the pattern recognition and then this approach of inductive deductive reasoning, the pattern recognition, just being able to see it, the more we see things. And I was commonly taught that, you know, that's how you learn ECGs. And I think for, and this should be our another episode where we look at how do we use these and apply these to teaching and learning um, in that manner. And what does that look like? Because when I was taught, it's like, okay, read these, recognize the patterns. But if you don't have the the baseline foundational knowledge of that inductive phase where you're learning how to differentiate normal and abnormal and what that looks like, it, the pattern recognition gets a little harder. I mean, someone like yourself that's well-published on say Brugada in, in the variations of it can easily see it, uh, but for a new learner, it might be a little more difficult. In terms of adding the clinical reasoning and the inductive and deductive phase, that, that's fascinating. I think you're right. That's that probably varies on you know who is the clinician, who are, are the primary responders. I love how you brought our emergency medicine colleagues into this because in many cases, they're one of the primary readers of ECGs in practice. Do you have any final thoughts before we end here? Yes, uh, first of all, in, in, in that regard, and despite some discrepancies on how we see things between ear doctors and cardiology doctors, I could like to highlight the names of uh, Professor Steve Smith and a colleague from, from the nursing side, David Didlake, and also another fabulous colleague called Brooks Walsh, who have taught me to amplify my perspective of things by giving me hints on how an ER doctor or a paramedic or a nurse can uh, think the ECGs and act upon it. So uh, you will see that in social media, we have very candid and passionate discussions, despite of which I always take some message home from them and their views and their needs. And I would like to finish with a great example of pattern recognition and inductive deductive mechanism. I've noticed that in the, in the background of your, how you say, presence here today in the podcast, there is an ECG. And I only see two bits of that ECG. And what I've noticed in that ECG in your background is that it has a short PR interval and it has a delay in the beginning of the QRS 
which is consistent with the delta wave. When I see short PR on a delta wave, immediately comes to mind the pattern recognition of an accessory pathway, which could be responsible for Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. However, as I only see two bits, I can say that background corresponds to ventricular pre-excitation, but I can't say that it belongs to a Wolf-Parkinson-White because I don't have the clinical context. So I can apply pattern recognition, but I can't apply inductive deductive. I can't say if it is a WPW syndrome, or I can't say where the pathway is located because I don't know exactly what that lead is. So you see a clinical example where you apply pattern recognition, but you miss inductive deductive in order to arrive to the final diagnosis. Well, very fascinating. And uh, I love how you're already bringing <laughs> the images of the background into it, which I, I probably have not analyzed as closely as you just have. And I agree with you 100% of you know some of our emergency medicine colleagues, David, Steve, um, and Brooks, you know, Walsh and uh, Pendle and so many others that we learn from their perspectives. I think that's what makes medicine fun. And it's the collective effort of really trying to achieve and push the field forward that that makes the difference. So I'm, thank you for bringing those names up. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Thank you for the invitation and please extend my gratitude to the Mayo Clinic ECG team. It's always a pleasure. And I was just gonna close here with just saying that differentiating narrow complex tachycardias can be difficult. Today, we learned a simple, easy to remember algorithm and make sure you go back and listen to this episode because it was well explained and it, sometimes we'll have to hear it again and again, uh, but it can help you in your practice. We've also gained some knowledge on common arrhythmias and how we arrive to those diagnoses. And then this inductive deductive approach as well as pattern recognition that we're gonna bring Dr. Baranchuk back on to talk to about more. Dr. Baranchuk, Again, thank you for joining us again. We always appreciate your, your teaching style, always sharing your expertise and supporting um, all we do. Thank you from um, our team for joining us again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast at cveducation.mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to a Mayo Clinic cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in every other week to explore today's most pressing electrocardiography topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.